1: The world is a mess. Climate change is producing dramatic, life-threatening weather. The far from over pandemic is birthing, rising political and social unrest. Geopolitical shifts are producing new uncertainties about what the rules are and even more fundamentally about who will protect or even stand up for basic human rights around the world. In the midst of this firestorm, people are suffering. Climate migrants need to escape fires, hurricanes, floods, economic migrants want better lives, families flee wars and oppression. Where do they go and how do they get there? What rights do migrants seeking asylum, seeking safety have? And how can they find safe harbor in a world that seems increasingly uninterested in collaborative global solutions? My guests today are working to defend the legal rights of refugees and migrants as they cope with governments that would rather they just went away. Becca Heller is the co-founder and executive director of the International Refugee Assistance Project. Christine Rembach is IRAP's Director of Complementary Pathways, based in Berlin, Germany. Welcome.
2: Thanks, Alan, we're happy to be here.
1: Let's start with the big picture. Is it easier or harder for migrants and refugees to get into and stay in the United States and Europe today than it was a couple of years ago? Becca, why don't you start?
2: Sure, I mean, I think, to me, I, I, I'll i speak to the U.S. and I'll let Christine speak to Europe. I think it's, it's easier in some ways, but mostly about the same. Um, I think the Biden administration has talked a really good game about, you know, being more generous and loosening some restrictions and overturning some of Trump's more um, offensive xenophobic policies. So for example, you no longer have a Muslim ban. Um, so you can get, hypothetically, you can get a visa to come here if you're Iranian, um, or Sudanese. Um, but at the same time, they've continued to use COVID as a reason to not let anyone in, ranging from, you know, not letting in visitors to not letting anyone seek asylum at the Southern border. So while a lot of things have been relaxed in theory In practice, no one is really able to get to the U.S. to take advantage of the fact that policies are more relaxed. So I would argue that, in fact, not that much has changed um, in the past couple of years in the U.S. in spite of the transition in administration.
1: Christine, how about Europe?
2: Yeah, I think with Europe, um, it's a bit of an easier
3: answer, um, which is that it's definitely harder than it was several years ago. I think in the height of the, quote-unquote, refugee crisis, Um, there were well over a million refugees and migrants arriving in Europe. And since then, we've seen governments, um, really reduce access to territory in the form of physical pushbacks, um, in consideration of, in considering offshore processing, uh, in really intentionally increasing the inhospitability of, um, of points of arrival with the the purpose of deterring people from arriving. And then of course you have what's happening in the Mediterranean with sort of aiding um, the Libyan Coast Guard with uh, interdicting boats and returning migrants to Libya and other places where they're suffering from human rights abuses. So I think that's been a pretty intentional policy of Europe to deter arrivals in Europe in the last several years.
1: Let's back up half a step. Is it possible to put some numbers on what's going on today? Obviously, the southern border of the United States uh, has been lit up. uh, A lot of attention, a lot of movement. Uh, We've seen in Europe, the Channel, Lithuania, Belarus border, Spain, Morocco, the Mediterranean. Uh, The intensity of the news story suggests that the numbers are rising. Are they actually rising?
2: They are. I think they're not rising with the intensity that the news stories would suggest. Um, I think that you see far right parties um, in both the U.S. and in Europe sort of seizing on this as a good wedge issue. And that has changed the narrative really significantly. You know, in, in the U.S., there's this whole debate about whether to even call what's happening at the southern border a crisis, um, and somehow the word crisis has become like very politically loaded in like a partisan way that will impact the midterms. So we can't even like use basic English to talk about what we mean there. Um, and and there has been a record number of arrests at the southern border. There are certainly more people than have been there um, in any year since 2000 and more people trying to flee. But I I, I would argue that it's not at the magnitude that... Um, The anguish or hysteria in the press would suggest, and that that is a narrative that is being sort of deliberately fanned by far right parties who are hoping to make anti-immigrant sentiment turn into votes in elections.
1: That said, and I want to move to Europe in a second, I saw some customs border data recently that if I was reading it correctly, and with the U.S. Customs, you have no idea what you're actually looking at, uh, something like a million plus apprehensions so far this year, fiscal year to date, which isn't a record. The record is back in 2005 and six, but that's a big number.
2: Yeah. I mean, the White House responded to that by saying that a lot of those are the same people who are trying to cross repeatedly. So it's not that's like each of those is not like a unique apprehension of someone coming to the border. But like if you if someone tries to cross eight times and we catch them eight times, then it starts to add up pretty quickly. So part of the problem with these statistics is that like everyone has an incentive to sort of um misdirect. And that's true of global refugee numbers also, right? Like refugee hosting countries like Jordan or Lebanon have an incentive to to really inflate the number of refugees that they're hosting so that they can try to use that as a way to get international aid. And other countries might like the US, for example, probably has an incentive to play down the number of people who are going to flee from Afghanistan um, or who have fled from Iraq. And so all of these and then the the UN and um, UNHCR has to fundraise off of these numbers. So they both want the numbers to be really big, but also they're not that good at actually keeping track of people or getting data. So I find it really difficult to like trust any given set of statistics. I do think it's clear that there are more people. I think at the U.S. southern border, a lot of people were just waiting for Trump to leave office um, because he really successfully turned the southern border into a place where like you would get tortured. Um, if you showed up, right, he took the Geneva Convention and he turned it on his head and he said, if you come here, we're going to separate you from your children and put you in prison and put your children in prison and expose you to COVID. And um, and that was successful to some extent in deterring people from the border, although I would not argue that that is an effective or long term border strategy. So I think some of that is like pent up demand. Um, but I also think that it's just it's really hard to trust anyone's versions of the numbers and the question is just like is it more numbers than the system can handle like are more people showing up than we can process and the answer to that is no like we could process them if we wanted to
1: we in this case is united states i'm talking about
2: the southern border yes like it's not more people than we would need to do us than than we're capable of doing asylum interviews for for example
1: christine how about europe
3: There has really been a significant decrease again since the, since the peak of migration in 2015, when, as I mentioned, uh, in the Mediterranean, you had over a million arrivals. Um, There was really a quick decline after that, um, down 80% each year for, um, for 2016 and 2017. And now we're seeing a little bit of a rise uh, again, but just for frame of reference, um, for Turkey to Greece, um, arrivals by boat, were 850,000 in 2015 and uh, 2016, or sorry, 60,000 in 2019. Uh, so not counting 2020, which was of course affected by COVID, um, but really significantly lower. Um, and you know, seeing as I said, a, a slight increase now, um, but not nearly the numbers that we were talking about uh, before. Um, but maybe to, to follow up on one of Becca's points, one of the things we see in the Mediterranean too is in 2015, it was possible to just arrive, um, declare yourself, and either uh, you know, stay in, in Greece or move on. Now that's not the case. So, smugglers and traffickers have come up with a lot of different routes to get people. People are not declaring themselves in the numbers that they were. So, I would say it's fair to say the numbers are significantly lower uh, than they were, but also that we might not be counting everyone the same way that we were.
1: Let's stand Europe for a second, because policy there has long been a struggle between what you might call the frontline states, the border states, uh, and everybody else. With the European Commission, uh, the European Union arguing that everyone should share in the solution, um, the border states agreeing wholeheartedly, and everybody else sort of saying, "Nah, not really. We won't take." In many cases, we we don't want any of your refugees. What is this? What is the policy today?
3: Yeah, I, I think the, the European Union has been trying for a number of years to reform its, the common European asylum system. That's the system that governs asylum uh, across Europe. And those efforts have been unsuccessful for the reasons that you just mentioned, because you have a bunch of member states who all have differing incentives. And so getting them to agree on anything is, is nearly impossible when it comes to a highly polarizing issue like this. And so, Those efforts are continuing, uh, but have not seen a lot of success recently. And so I think we need to look to, you know, there there are small examples of solidarity when we talk about disembarkation of some of the boats that have been rescued, and there have been some relocations to other member states. Um, During COVID, there was a a bit of agreement on relocation from the Greek hotspot islands um, due to COVID especially for unaccompanied children. Some other member states uh, agreed to take some of them in. But I think if you look at the system as a whole, the, the effort to reform and come up with a, a workable responsibility sharing regime has been unsuccessful. And I don't know that a lot of people have, have hope in, in a workable system coming out of that at this point.
1: Let's shift gears. You've described, you both described the situation on the ground in Europe and the states. You've characterized policy, good, bad, or ugly. Um, you're both practicing lawyers, and you're in the business of defending the rights of migrants and refugees. What are your strategies? What are you doing? How are you coping with um, with what is obviously an enormous and, and continuing problem?
2: Our, our strategy is kind of threefold, I would say. The- It's grounded the most in in individual cases. So we work with thousands of people every year um, in in different types of cases. They could be traditional, what you would call refugee resettlement, which is where kind of the UN refers you as a refugee to be resettled somewhere. Um, Christine's title of director of complementary pathways is a a whole area that we came up with when... um, the, the kind of backlash to the huge flows of 2015 started when Trump was elected, when Brexit happened, when it became clear that traditional refugee resettlement was um, not going to be a viable option for lots of people. And we started to look at like, okay, well, what are other pathways that people can take? And we saw... Family reunification is a huge pathway that many people qualify for, but either don't know how to navigate or or don't even know that they qualify for. There's things called humanitarian corridors. There's countries in Europe that have um, what are called asylum visas, which is like a special visa just to go to the country to apply for asylum. So, you know, as the political winds shift, um, I think for us as lawyers being aware that there are pathways that are not dependent on politics, um, that exist in the law, sort of regardless of, of who's running a country and what their policies are, that we can continue to kind of help people down. Then the our second strategy is that, you know, in doing thousands of different types of cases every year, we figure out, like, what in the system isn't working. <clears throat> and sometimes it's not working in a way that's illegal, and we can bring a lawsuit about it and and make a court fix it. Sometimes it's not working in a way that's political, and so we need to do advocacy with legislatures or parliaments. And um, and, and sometimes it's not working in a way that's more narrative. Um, and so the, the third strategy for us and one that we're just sort of starting to work on is, is really trying to shift the narrative um, and try to kind of depoliticize this issue and show that like it's not about terrorism and it's not about victims and it's, you know, it's about like a mom who just wants to live in the same place as her kid. Um, and and try to sort of take some of the toxic political dialectic out of it that I think has has been inserted, um, especially in the last like five or six years. And that's a strategy that we're still trying to figure out, but that I feel like for the the long term in this issue is really critical. Um, and then we also try to sort of identify like what are emerging issues Um, that need to be addressed. And so we have a new program on climate migration, because there's no real framework in the world to deal with that whatsoever. And so we're trying to develop like, what would the building blocks of that look like? Like, what would an actual legal framework to deal with climate migration look like?
1: Christine, sitting in Germany and working on European issues, uh, is there a different mix of tools that you need to use to try to achieve the, the legal goals you're trying to achieve on behalf of individuals caught up in the system?
3: Well, I think uh, I think the challenge in in being a lawyer in, in this context, especially in the European context, is Europe is actually a bunch of different countries, um, and all of those countries have different legal systems. And so our team is made up of uh, lawyers from several different European member states, European Union member states. Um, and we all work together to try to have a, uh, a consistent approach to these individual representations. So we're focused mostly on humanitarian visas and family reunification, as Becca was mentioning. Um, and, but the, the arguments that you make in each of those national contexts are going to be different. The pressure points are going to be different. Um, and the policy problems that exist in each country are different. So they're within a common European framework, but you really have to be involved in the individual country's legal system. So that's something that we're building and we're building it by involving lawyers from, from a variety of different contexts who have expertise in those particular systems. So we're able to represent individual clients in a variety of different countries, um, also litigate cases in the courts of a variety of different countries, and then as we look at the common issues across Europe, we're looking long-term at how those, uh, how those structural problems can be challenged at the European level, so in the European courts. So being able to draw experiences from a variety of different national contexts will inform our work um, at, an, at an EU level.
1: There clearly are countries and politicians in parts of Europe that are making their bones opposing migrants of any kind or refugees of any kind. Are there any leaders you would point to at the national level doing the opposite that that are advocates for the kind of policies and kinds of programs that for which you would advocate in Europe?
3: I would say France has done a really good job of, of creating programs that allow new ways to access the territory. So I think the trend that we're seeing in Europe is really to um, to prohib- prohibit access to the territory. So France has, for example, what's called the asylum visa, which Becca referenced before, which allows refugees who are under imminent threat to apply for permission to go to France for purposes of claiming asylum. Um, this is something that not many countries in Europe have. Um, they are allowed to have it, but they don't. Um, and so this has been a program that's been helpful to a number of our clients. And the other program that I would mention, uh, which Becca also mentioned earlier, is Humanitarian Corridors, which is a, a, a program that is led by a number of faith-based organizations in Europe where um, refugees are selected for relocation from countries of first asylum to Europe, um, mostly France and Italy at this point. And their uh, reception and integration is handled by these organizations. So it's not a government-run program. It's more like a community-based resettlement program. And that's worked really well as well. So these are relatively small programs, but I think they're great examples for other countries um, to emulate. And I think they're reflective of a different approach than uh, trying to prohibit all access to the territory.
0: If you feel that the world lacks global leaders, please help support the Talberg Foundation programs. Individual donations are being accepted at talbergfoundation.org slash donate. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org slash donate.
1: Switching back to the states, Becca, you implied earlier that you had hoped for a significant change in American policy when the administration changed. And reading between the lines didn't seem to have happened. Is that because of the sheer magnitude of the problem, because of the mess that was inherited, or because these guys have a similar, if more eloquent and and, and better communicated uh, approach to migration as their predecessors. Why aren't you happier with, with the new guys?
2: I mean, I, I think there's sort of two different questions there. One is what are they doing that I don't like? And the second question is why are they doing it? Right. Uh, I don't know if you're more interested in, in one than the other. Um, No, i like both. Okay. So, so I think the, the thing that I am, I am most recently seized of is, um, the decision not to end title 42 on the border.
1: Which you need to explain what Title Forty Two, it.
2: So Title Forty Two is is basically using the CDC or the Center for Disease Controls power to say that COVID means we need to close the border, um, and it's it's pretty self contradictory because we are you know we're allowing travelers in, um, and we're allowing U.S. travelers to go in and out without checking their vaccination status. Um, but for some reason, we're saying that in, in spite of those things happening, uh, we cannot safely, given COVID, allow people to come to the southern border and seek asylum. Um, this was something that the Trump administration put into place over the protests of every single human rights activist or advocate that exists um, over the protest of many Democrats and that, that Biden on the campaign trail said that he was going to get rid of. Um, the ACLU also has a lawsuit, um, specifically on behalf of families who show up at the border saying that if a family shows up at the border seeking asylum, it's inhumane to use this title to prevent them from asking for asylum. And I will say that, that to show up to a border seeking asylum is a fundamental provision of international law that has existed since 1951. Um, it's, it's very old and well documented and and well enshrined um so it's it's very much like the trump administration sort of using the pandemic as an excuse to like continue to just like eat away at the geneva convention so biden came into office promising that he was going to stop doing this Um, sort of stop using the excuse of the pandemic to turn people away on the border. And to the extent that he convinced the ACLU to stay their lawsuit, meaning that they would sort of temporarily pause pursuing their litigation um, as as, as a recognition of the good faith efforts on the part of the Biden administration to figure out a way to repeal Title 42. And the deadline that they had set was the end of July. And in like May and June, we started to hear rumors that oh, it might be that they only repeal Title 42 for families, um, because families are the subject of the lawsuit. Maybe they won't repeal it for all vulnerable adults, and that seemed bad enough. Um, and then the end of July rolled around, and they decided not to repeal Title 42 for anyone, um, but to leave it completely in place. And so, I mean, if I were the ACLU, I'd be really angry that I didn't litigate this for eight months when I could have been. But I'm, you know, we have. Um, a legal aid project that we're doing on the border. And there's just a huge backlog of people that that desperately need to get in, um, including people who are really in danger, even in Mexico, and who now continue to not be able to apply for asylum. And this is sort of one of the gems in Stephen Miller's crown of xenophobic Trump policies that the Biden administration spent, you know, seven months studying, and then at the end of the day decided to keep um, and so that's a thing I'm not happy with. Uh, the second question as to why they would decide to keep that, I think, I would argue, is their own repeated misreading of immigration and politics. I think that this administration cares about the midterms more than anything else. Um, and I think that they, the Republicans in the U.S. have made it very clear that they intend to use the border as a cudgel in the midterm elections. And I think that that has scared the Biden administration into backing off of a lot of campaign promises, including increasing the refugee number, by the way.
1: Christine, do the European governments, European bureaucrats watch the U.S.? Does it matter at all to Europe's policy what either President Trump or President Biden does or doesn't do?
3: I have not heard... Any discussion about U.S. immigration policy here in Europe, um, except from the perspective of, of criticizing it, um, and I think, with the exception of the border, which is a which is a big thing that we've been talking about, I think that the issues that were facing Europe and the U.S. were quite different. Like a lot of what the Trump administration was doing was visa bans, the Muslim ban, um, those kinds of entry restrictions, where Europe was faced with um, an influx of people arriving in, in various different places at its borders and seeking to claim asylum. So, um, so I think the conversation has been different. I think the conversation here is a lot about, um, responsibility sharing, as we were talking about before, about how the European states can interact with each other. Um, and, you know, I, I think what the U.S. is doing is, is important insofar as, uh, as I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question, I guess I would say.
1: Which is an answer in and of itself, because it suggests leadership, good, bad or ugly, doesn't exist on this issue. Uh, Yeah,
3: absolutely. I mean, I would say what we're seeing is a race to the bottom, like especially in the European context. The U.S. is now an actor in that. It's like, how much can we reduce, um, especially when we're talking about the right to claim asylum? It's Like, how much can we can we crack down on this before we actually just destroy the the convention itself?
2: Yeah, I, I think they use each other as an ex, as excuses, right? So like when, you know, even during like the Biden transition team, when they were looking at like different ways to treat the U.S.-Mexico border, they were looking to Europe for examples of like, oh, wait, you know, are there examples of where people have shown up at the border and they haven't given them asylum? Um, are there And there are, right? Because Europe has also been sort of eroding the norms of the Geneva Convention. So I think Christine's description of a race to the bottom is pretty true. I think, you know, it could be reversed. There have been times in the past where like the U.S. has been a leader in refugee resettlement and has used our soft power to encourage other countries to make similar commitments, um, where like the U.S. and Canada have teamed up to do that. Um, there's some movement happening around that with something called community and private sponsorship, which is where like individual groups of people come together to sponsor refugees, which is a program that's pretty well developed in Canada that they're now sort of trying to export to European countries and the United States. Um, but I definitely think at this point it's it's sort of looking to each other and saying like, who's gotten far enough in sort of violating international law that we can also violate it and make sure that we'll have impunity.
1: Let's go back to the pandemic. You've touched on it through Title 42. uh, But the bumper sticker for the for the pandemic was we're all in it together, even though the reality was completely the opposite. Two questions. You guys are on the ground dealing with this stuff day to day in the context of migration. Were you surprised that the gut reaction was nationalistic rather than global? Um, And is there any reason in what you th- see to think we might shift gears, particularly with regard to migration?
2: I was not surprised. I would I would argue that it wasn't even nationalistic. I mean, I think you know the U.S. is a really really big country. Um, so in Europe, where countries are quite literally smaller, it may have been different. But in the U.S., it was it was very regionalistic, um, and you can see that now when you you know you look at a map of where the outbreaks are, and it's it's sort of tracks regional politics and reactions to the vaccine. Um, but I think that when faced with a threat, period, there's always a tendency to go inward um, and to to think that you're defending yourself. And I think there's something existential about, you know, when faced with a threat like COVID that could literally kill you, you, you want to think that you have control. Um, so you draw sort of smaller and smaller circles around the thing that you're trying to protect to give you some semblance of a sense of control over the thing. And if you say like, Oh, I'm responsible for COVID in the whole world. I think that that makes people feel really overwhelmed. Um, but if you just say like, I'm responsible for my household or I only have to worry about my street or my town or my state, um, it, it makes you feel more in control. And I think where you're seeing this play out right now is, is with vaccine distribution, right? I mean, there was like a rash of articles yesterday you know the the WHO is calling on countries not to use booster shots um because they cuz so many countries don't even have enough vaccine for people to get a first vaccine and and we have vaccines sort of literally like expiring on the shelves um so i don't think it's a hopeful picture for um sort of globally coming together in the face of threats but i would Suggest that the hope for migration is that it need not be viewed as a threat. Like, I think COVID is quite obviously a threat, right? It will kill you. Uh, I don't think migration has ever killed anyone besides, unfortunately, migrants who are forced to make really dangerous journeys with smugglers because we don't make legal pathways available to them. Um and so my hope would be that you know the world can start to accept that that migration is inevitable um, especially with climate that there's not there's no solving for the root causes of this, right that that places are going to become unlivable and once they're unlivable, the nature of the human spirit is going to be to leave and try to find somewhere else where they can live because I think the humans are hopeful and they want to survive and they want their families to survive. And I think that those are not only reasonable traits, but like beautiful traits that ought to be celebrated. Um, and so I think once we accept that like the mass movement of humans is inevitable, if we can make systems to try to process that in an orderly way, it's it's beneficial for the individuals who need to leave because they can they can cross regularly. They don't have to undertake these sort of risking their live journeys on a boat or, or risking getting trafficking or separating themselves from their kids. And it's better for the security of nation states also who are way better off being able to actually like process people in, in an orderly fashion than dealing with like irregular crossings and ending up like not even knowing sort of who's inside their borders and, and who's not. So my hope would be that um, COVID is not a predictor of how, the world could deal with migration because at some point the world will realize that migration is just like a natural outgrowth of globalization and kind of what we've done to the planet that needs to be dealt with like any other kind of geopolitical force um, and doesn't need to be viewed as as a threat that we need to defend against.
1: Where does the leadership come from to accomplish the kinds of things that uh, you both individuals like to see happen, as, as Becca just articulated? Um, And that arguably ought to happen. Things don't just spontaneously get better. They usually require leadership. And this seems to be an issue that is remarkably lacking consistent, effective, moral leadership.
3: I think a lot of what Becca has been talking about, about narrative shift, is really important here. Because there needs to be a recognition at some point that migrants and refugees, uh, quote-unquote, whatever we want to call them or label them, are humans who are making rational decisions. And they're making decisions amongst the choices that they have. And the choices that they have in terms of where they can live or the living they can make for themselves or the wars that they're living through are influenced by the policies of all of our countries and all of us as a human race. And so I think uh, recognizing that, which I think is a really basic thing, uh, is really part of moving toward a system where uh, people can move with dignity. So I don't think that really answered your question in terms of political leadership, but I think changing the narrative uh, amongst individuals and communities who are talking about these issues and who are electing their leaders will be a big part of that.
1: Becca?
2: I, I don't know that I think there's a good like top down leader and I know you've been searching for that a little bit in this conversation like asking you know who in Europe is like good on this issue and and do I like what the Biden administration is doing but I do think there is a collective we that's trying to like move the needle on this which is which is more movement oriented um that there are like a lot of groups that are springing up that there's philanthropy that's springing up around this that hasn't been interested in this before that there's um, a huge portion of civil society sort of all over the world that's trying to work on this issue, that there's better collaboration between climate groups and immigration groups around like climate migration issues. Um, and I, so I, while I think that we haven't really permeated to like leaders of nation states as yet, like I, I do think that there is, there's a we. Um, and I, I think that there's there's increasing interest in in civil society groups in trying to address this and an increasing recognition that, that, that the major, you know, the first major implication of climate change that we're going to see is human displacement um, and that we have to start dealing with that. We as a people of the earth who want to continue inhabiting it.
1: Let me thank you on behalf of the Telberg Foundation, for the work you are doing. We, in this case, the Telberg Foundation, very much appreciate it. And, and, and I firmly believe you're on the right path. There just needs to be more of you. So again, Christine, thank you. Becca, thank you. And thank you for the conversation.
2: Thanks so much for having
0: great. us. Thank you for having us. It was great to be here. Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcast and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org. Thank you, and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Niarchos foundation.